Our last class series focused on how Jesus gave his now large group of disciples some advanced training, and we called it Discipleship 102, just to indicate that it was advanced training. So in this new class series, Jesus is going to take one last shot at teaching the Pharisees, the disciples, and all the people everything they need to know when he's gone. He's only got about three months left to get the message across. It's somewhere in that time frame. Um, Jesus' teaching part of, in, in this part of his ministry is very heavy on parables. Um, he uses vivid stories to make his points. And this is his last big set of parables. There, there'll be a few others you know, he sprinkles in um, later, but but this this series is his last big set, and and it's different than the set of parables that we did in the earlier series we did some time ago about the teachings and parables of Jesus. Back in those early teachings and parables, Jesus was focused on the good news, just telling people about God's desire to heal them. Uh, and he used lots of parables explaining what the kingdom of heaven is like and emphasizing that it's here at hand. But now Jesus' teachings take on a whole different theme. He, of course, continues to heal folks. He does that his entire life. But the theme of his teaching begins to center on two main points. First, how people who are in positions of authority or stewardship are to act. Uh, that's these these parables are specifically for the disciples, but also for those religious leaders um, like the Pharisees. And the second main point is how our role as disciples is one of service. We that's that's how we fit in the big picture. We we are we do service to people and to God. God cares about the least and the lowliest. And just like Jesus has has been doing all along, we are to patiently and faithfully watch for and help in whatever God is doing with the people. At this point, Jesus is back in Jerusalem, walking around the temple courts. It's winter time, just a few months after the Feast of Tabernacles, where he nearly got himself stoned to death for calling himself the I Am, the ancient Jewish name for God. It's now time for Hanukkah, which is also called the Festival of Dedication because it celebrates the rededication of the temple after its desecration like 200 years ago during the time of the Maccabees. And you might ask why the religious leaders just don't go ahead and arrest Jesus on charges of heresy at, right after he told them, before Abraham was born, I am. But the truth of the matter is, even though they want to stone Jesus, the Jews don't legally have the authority to put people to death. Only Rome can do that. And Rome is only going to agree to kill him if the Jews can prove that Jesus is a threat to peace in the region. The Romans are only going to care about Jesus if they think he's inciting the Jews to revolt against Rome. So regardless of how loudly they grind their teeth, the religious leaders are stuck with Jesus for now. But they still keep trying to trap him. They say, how long are you going to put us off? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. They figure that if Jesus admits plainly that he is the Messiah, they've got him. Because even the Romans know that the Messiah is prophesied to be a great king who comes to deliver Israel from her enemies. And in Jesus' time, the enemy is Rome. So this would be something the religious leaders could take to the Romans. The problem is, from the religious leaders' point of view, Jesus never uses the actual word Messiah or king 
which are words the Romans would recognize. Jesus always refers to himself as the Son of Man, which the Jews definitely understand to mean the Messiah based on an old prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. But the Son of Man title is only used for the Messiah that one time in the Hebrew Bible. And that particular prophecy is set in the throne room of God, not on earth. It's not something the Romans would find threatening at all. Can you imagine trying to explain to an impatient Roman prefect like Pontius Pilate why someone who calls themselves the son of man is a threat? The Romans aren't going to sit still long enough to learn how that one prophecy in Daniel connects with all the other messianic prophecies. So the religious leaders are trying to get Jesus to actually call himself Messiah, Christos, rather than calling himself Son of Man. But Jesus is very, very careful not to use the word Messiah around them, or even like he even use it in public. I mean, early on, he told one Samaritan woman at the well that he was he was the Messiah. It was like practically the first rattle out of the box. And she's the only one he told specifically. And he he knows his disciples understand that he's the Christ, but he's warned them to be super careful about saying that out loud. And all of these were very private conversations, well away from listening ears. The evil spirits have called him Christ, Messiah, but he always silences them immediately. And the religious leaders can hardly use that as proof against him. The Romans would laugh them out of the room. The people, the people certainly argue about whether he's the Christ or not. But they also think he might be Elijah or the prophet like Moses or even a fraud. Jesus himself never uses the title Christos, Messiah, when he's speaking in public. Never. He always uses the title Son of Man. And that's why the religious leaders are asking, how long are you going to put us off? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I did tell you, you didn't believe me. I told you with the works I did in my father's name, the signs, the wonders, and the miracles. You don't believe me because you are not from my flock. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them life forever. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who gave them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of his hand either. The Father and I are one and the same. Oh boy, there goes Jesus telling them plainly that he is God, the I am. You know what happens. They get so mad, they pick up stones to kill him instantly, legal or not. But Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these are you stoning me for? And they yell, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, for claiming that you, a mere man, are God. And Jesus quickly quotes part of Psalm 82 to them, where the psalm writer himself says, you are gods. The Bible says that? Yes, yes, it does. The entire psalm is is super short. It says, God takes his stand in the assembly of the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the orphaned and the poor. Do justice for the marginalized and the needy. Deliver them from the hands of the wicked. They, meaning the gods, walk in darkness. The foundations of the land are unstable. I, the psalm writer, said, you are gods. You are all children of the Most High. But you will die like commoners and fall like princes. 
Arise, God, and govern the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now that is fascinating, isn't it? It has deep roots in ancient Near East religions and mythologies in which the, these ancient people pictured a supreme God who talks over human fates with lesser gods. Um, and it's not a psalm we study much, but Jesus studied it and Jesus noticed that the psalm writer wrote, you are gods. You are all children of the most high. That line is what makes this psalm acceptable in Hebrew scripture. That line indicates that these so-called gods are nothing more than proud men who think they are gods, when in fact, they are children of the Most High. They are us. So when Jesus quotes this line to the religious leaders who are about to stone him, he says, if the psalm writer called them gods, and the psalm is part of scripture, then how can you say that the one the Father consecrated and sent into the world is blaspheming when I say, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even if you won't believe me, at the very least, you must believe that the works themselves bear witness that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And once again, <laughs> the religious leaders try to arrest Jesus, but he slips out of their hands and makes his way down to the Jordan River, where his cousin, John the Baptist, used to preach. And many people come to him there saying, John never did any miracles. But everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in Jesus there by the Jordan River. I want to pause here and take a look at the first chapter of John. This is not John the Baptist, John the disciple. John the disciple opens his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Jesus especially talks about he, how he is the light of the world. So this seems like a good time to ponder what John thinks Jesus is saying. The part that seems especially pertinent begins in verse 9. This is, as usual, my direct translation. John says, the light that came into the world, enlightening everyone, was true. He was in the world. The world came into being through him. Yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but even they did not receive him. But to whoever did receive him, to those who believed him, he gave the authority to become children of God. Not children of flesh and blood, but children begotten of God. Conversely, the word became flesh and made his home among us. And we looked directly upon his glory, a glory like an only son coming from beside the father, full of grace and truth. From his superabundance, we have all received grace corresponding to his grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus, the Messiah, Christos. John gets it, but the religious leaders definitely do not. That was from the Gospel of John, but now we're going to move back to the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 14, and follow his chronology for the rest of this series, pulling in you know, Matthew and Mark as we go. Jesus and his disciples are traveling around, walking from village to village, presumably staying with prominent citizens whenever they stay overnight. Or if they can't do that, they camp out where, when, you know, whenever there's no place to stay. On one Sabbath, Jesus is eating in the home of a high-ranking Pharisee who, of course, has invited other lawyers and Pharisees to die. Now, these lawyers are not the regular scribes, but are much more learned 
and much more important in the religious hierarchy. So as it so happens, one of the men has edema, a condition where your body retains fluid. Now, most people who have edema have terrible swelling in their feet, ankles, and legs. And since all the men's feet are bare as they recline at table, this poor man's condition is quite obvious to everyone. So the lawyers and the Pharisees watch closely to see what Jesus will do. They know Jesus has no qualms about healing on the Sabbath. Jesus asks them, so what do you think? Is it against the law to heal on the Sabbath or not? Crickets. No one says a word. They expected Jesus to just heal the guy and then they could jump on him about it. They didn't expect him to ask them whether he should heal or not. <laughs> Jesus, I imagine, gives them his best eye roll as he takes hold of the man, heals him, and lets him go. Jesus says to the men, you know, if any of you had an ox or a child that fell into a well on the Sabbath, you'd immediately pull them out, wouldn't you? Again, crickets. So Jesus plows ahead in the deathly silence. He looks at the men who have seated themselves in places of honor and says, you know, guys, when someone invites you to a wedding banquet, you shouldn't take the best spot. If someone more important than you shows up, the host will have to ask you to give up and move to a lesser seat and you will be completely humiliated. How much better it would be to take the lowliest seat and have the host come to you and say, oh, my dear friend, come take a better seat. Then you will be honored in front of everyone reclining at the table. Everyone who exalts themselves will be brought down, but the one who is humble will be raised up. Can you imagine the looks these important men are giving each other? Who does Jesus think he is to say such things to them? Then Jesus speaks directly to the host who has invited all these important people to meet him. I imagine the other men are somewhat hostile to Jesus, but I think Jesus senses that the heart of his host may be softened. Jesus says, when you give a dinner, don't invite your good friends or family or rich, important people, because they'll probably reciprocate and invite you over in return, and that will be your reward. Instead, when you throw a party, invite people who cannot repay you, the poor, the lame, the maimed, the blind. Then you will be blessed, and you will be rewarded at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the second time we've heard Jesus refer to a resurrection. I talk about the most explicit passage in John 5 in the class series titled, Jesus Begins His Ministry. That was way back. You can find that discussion in class 96. But the bottom line is that Jesus says that those who have done what is good will rise to the resurrection of life, while those who have done what is evil will rise to the resurrection of judgment. Some Bibles translate that last word as a resurrection of condemnation, but the Greek word used here is not the word usually used for condemnation. There are other words for that. The word used here is usually used for judgment. And as we've seen, judgment and condemnation are two completely different things. Judgment involves things being set right, being made whole, having the light shine on all evil deeds so the power of evil is completely stripped away. God is all about healing and protecting us, not destroying us. So when Jesus tells his host he'll be rewarded for his good deeds at the resurrection of the righteous, that makes perfect sense. Finally, someone at the table has the nerve to pipe up. I figure this guy has got to be an Enneagram type nine, a peacemaker. He says, 
Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. (laughs) I think Jesus nods in agreement. But remember, Jesus is in his last few months. He's got to tell them everything they need to know in a way they'll remember it. So Jesus doesn't just let this whole thing go here. Instead, he says, once upon a time, there was a man about to throw a huge banquet. He invited tons of guests. And when the time came, he sent his servant out to let folks know everything was ready. But everyone had an excuse as to why they could not come. One guy said, I just bought a field and I need to go look at it. I'm going to have to beg off. And another guy said, oh, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go inspect them. Please excuse me. The next one said, I just got married. I really can't come. When the servant reported all this to the master, the master knew he'd been completely disrespected. Totally annoyed, the master tells his servant, go quickly out into the streets of the city and bring the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. But after the servant does that, there's still room for more at the banquet. So the master says, this time, go out into the highways, out beyond the walls, and make people come in. My house must be full, and I tell you for sure, not a single one I invited will get a taste of the banquet. Jesus said the same thing back when he talked about entering through the narrow door in Luke 13. The folks who missed the door weren't tossed into eternal torment or fiery hell. Jesus just said they'd be ejected from the big party. If you want to see the discussion of this passage, you'll find it in class 114 of the Discipleship 102 series. So I guess the dinner party with the Pharisees and those hoity-toity lawyers ends pretty quickly after Jesus told that parable. Well, large crowds are following Jesus everywhere, and he's constantly bombarded by people who want to become disciples. Finally, he stops and talks to them plainly about the high cost of being a disciple. Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and even your own life. I think, based on the context, that Jesus is saying, being my disciple could cost you your entire family. They could all turn against you. It could even cost you your own life. Well, the people are very familiar with the sight of the people the Romans condemn bearing their own cross on their backs as they go to their deaths. Jesus says, To be my disciple, you must pick up your own cross and follow me. If you want want to build a tower, won't you first sit down and figure out how much it will cost to be sure you've got enough money to finish it? Everyone would make fun of you if you laid the foundation and then didn't have the money to finish the building. Or what about a king preparing to go to war? Won't he figure out if he's got enough troops to defeat whatever forces are coming against him? And if he doesn't, won't he send like a diplomatic delegation to sue for peace before the enemy gets anywhere close? It is the same for you. If you are not willing to give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. Hear me when I tell you this. Salt is good. Now remember that Jesus said his disciples are the light and the salt in the world. Here he says, salt is good, but if it loses its taste, what can be used to season it? It is not good for anything. It is tossed out. In our breakout groups today, We'll have a little fun going back through the parable of the man giving a wedding feast. 
We'll compare the two different versions of the story in Matthew and Luke and see what we might glean. I always feel bad that I know somebody's getting cut off in mid-sentence. That was Ellen. Yeah. <laughs> that time it was well, Ellen. <laughs> I should have known. As soon as I saw the zeros, I should have just stopped. <laughs> I hope well, you have fun I- with this. Because it it um, it starts the questions start easy and then they gotta get harder as you work your way down. <laughs> um, and it, it, we're going through and we're comparing the Matthew version of this story with the Luke version of this story, and and Matthew's version is a little harsher than Luke's version, right? Um, so let's start with kind of the easier questions at the beginning. Uh, the king or master prepares a great wedding banquet. Um, and in, in uh, Matthew, it says he's preparing it for his son. So in this case, who who is the king or master and who is the son? My, my take and what I had been taught was that the king and the master are God and the son is Jesus. That makes perfect um, sense. Yeah. And that the guests that the guests in this in the context of telling was the priests and the scribes who were challenging him, not believing him. Right. Exactly. Seeing seeing the seeing the king as God makes perfect sense until you get down to that next to last one where there's one one poor soul who doesn't have the right clothes on and the king throws him out into the darkness. I know. I know. Right. Well, we're going to get to that one. We're, we're going to get okay. get there. Uh, we're, let's, let's do the easy ones first. So if the guests or the priests, the, in this immediate context, it was the scribes, uh, not the scribes. It was the lawyers and the Pharisees, right. Was who he was telling it to. Although Matthew sets it a little bit differently. So you can, you know, you could say it's all the people. It's, it's kind of general, right. But he had some particular guests in mind that this, this invitation did not start off as broad, right. It was just particular people invited so that you could actually think that it was the Jews. The Jews. Right? It could be. Doesn't say that. Okay. Uh, and and who are the servants in view here? Would it have been the disciples? Yeah. And Jesus? Yeah, it would be the disciples, right? Um, anybody who Jesus sends out, because uh, these are servants that are just going out to tell the guests that it's the banquet is ready, that it's time now. So um, in both cases, it, it, Matthew's version, which is the harsher version, the guests just ignore the servants <laughs> completely. And in in Luke's version, they at least have excuses. Um so, so, um, what message are they sending to the king in this case? They got other important things, more important things. Other things are more important. Others and other things are more important. I thought it was interesting um, that the idea of others being more important how that ties in with that one excuse about, well, I just got married. There's no way I can come, you know? Um, it, and uh, with Jesus just having said, you know, if you, if you are about to say, if if you want to be my disciple, you can't be clinging to family. That's hard to hear. It's as, it that can be as hard to hear for us as it is hard to hear. You can't be clinging to your money either. Um, so in Matthew's version, some of the guests beat and kill the servants and the king in anger destroys those murderers and burns their city down. Did y'all have any comments on that part? <laughs> we we skipped down to the, to the one about the improperly dressed guests. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to get there. We just got one more thing to do. Um, I, I, was, I was wondering, um, part of what I was saying at the end was the, 
I was just recalling our past understanding of fire and burning and the idea of purification versus obliteration, you know, eternal obliteration. And I was wondering if there was a connection there, you know, because it says he destroys the murderers and then burns their city. Um, so again, I just didn't know if that tied into a purification process versus an eternal banishment. I like that idea much better. It, it absolutely could. It could also, right, just be reflective of the culture in which they live. That's what a king would do in their culture. He would kill those folks and burn their city to the ground. So this is a story. So it could be either or both. But, but, but again, if, if the king is supposed to represent God, then it makes sense that the destruction and burning would be more of a purification. It does. Absolutely. Although with the understanding of the religious leaders of the time, um, the, the, the vengeance for being disrespected would, would make sense to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it could be a double meaning kind of thing that he was saying. And it can be Jesus simply playing to their understanding of God, right? So that we don't, he, he's not right here for that we can ask him. <laughs> but, but, um, you know, so I don't know. I don't want to stretch the parable too far, but I do want to make sure that we consider all these possibilities because I think we tend to just breeze right through this parable and we miss some good stuff. So, um, so then the king sends servants to invite everyone. Um, in, in Luke, first he sends them to the city, which in this case, you would think the parallel would be Jerusalem, right? You know, um, and, and then, and then, and then out into the countryside, um, when the people from the city won't come. But it's very interesting in the Matthew version in verse 10, Jesus specifically says the king sends servants to invite anyone, good or bad. Okay. So my only question on that row was, is there likely to be one more than one bad person who comes? Of course. Yeah, you'd think so, right? Law of averages. Absolutely. So I would expect lots of bad people to come, maybe even more bad people to come, you know, um, I, who knows? So at the party, now here's the one y'all dying to get to at the party, <laughs> at the party, the king notices one guest improperly dressed. The guest cannot explain himself when the king asks him about this. So um, before we get to what happens, what message did the improper dress send to the king? This, this poor guy, he, the guy said, look, I was just out plowing. You know, I didn't, I, I wasn't dressed for a party and they, they dragged me in. Oh, I like that. And to relate that to another um few kind of parables he wasn't prepared or maybe he missed the the invitation with the dress code well this is in a culture that knows what the dress code is so the assumption behind this i think is that the guy had clothes to wear and did not wear them mm. all right so something just came to mind back in my rigid dualistic upbringing of God and the enemy. What if, if the king is supposed to be God and this improperly dressed person is the enemy cloaked as how there's Bible verses. What is it? The wolf cloaked or sheep, the sheep, and the wolf, whatever, you know? So if it's, if it's well, maybe some angel of light, whatever. Yeah. Maybe someone evil trying to bring harm to the party. I could oh. be more for, the king just, harming this person instead of this person harming everyone else. Interesting. So we've got the idea of being not prepared, the idea of um, there with an intent to harm. Um, any other ideas? What improper dress might mean? 
Well, in, in a broader sense, it could just be a sign that this particular guest was sending a message of disrespect. Yeah, of, and that kind of ties into that first part, right? Yeah. Yeah, I came, but, you know. I'm still, you, know, you, you can make me come in the door, but you ain't going to make me enjoy this, you know? It kind of ties back to our, our theme of humility. It It does seem that there's a disregard for yeah. the environment exactly a, di- a complete disrespect for the king here you know so we've got actual, three choices there you can pick yeah, whatever actual, one you want we're just playing actual, host, actual hostility yeah could be hostility absolutely you, you can just imagine it right um and perhaps drawing other people away to that attitude well, and that might then explain why when he was challenged by the king, he couldn't answer. Because mm-hmm. if it was just somebody who was poor and didn't have a wedding robe, because I was reading the NRSV version, it said he noticed a guest wasn't wearing a wedding robe. Um, maybe he didn't have one. But then he could say, oh, my Lord, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I, exactly. I wore the best I had, but I don't have, you know, what would be considered proper dress in the court or at the banquet. But he can't talk. He doesn't have an answer. And that would imply more that he was caught and didn't know how to get out of the fact that this was a deliberate act of disrespect. I love that. In in general terms, it's like the king was asking, why are you why are you doing the bad things you're doing? Yes. And keeping on doing them when there is no need. The party is right here all around you. Exactly. Exactly. So then the king has his hands and feet bound and he's thrown out of the banquet into darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That is a phrase we have come to know, (laughs) right? This is how Jesus describes terrible punishment. You're just thrown out of the party, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. The thing that got added here, as Woody pointed out, was the king had his hands and feet bound. Why did he do that? What is the significance of that? What does it mean? What what changes if your hands and feet are bound? Well, you're helpless. You're stripped of power. To be back to your point of you know, grasping and taking people, you're not able to bring with you. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and also, I can't remember who it was that said it, but the idea of coming to the banquet with the intention of doing harm. Um, hands and feet are bound. You can no longer do that. Yeah. yeah. Starting to get a little more, more robust here. Starting to see some some reasoning behind this kind of part of the parable notice the the dark and light play here in this part okay jesus is all about how light he and the disciples are the light okay and and the light's going to be there and the light is going to strip power of you know strip evil of its power that this whole thing is still, it sounds to me like just reframing and rephrasing evil is not going to be allowed to operate in the kingdom of God. And if the whole, if the banquet represents the kingdom of God, then by definition, everything outside the kingdom of God is darkness. Exactly. And in this in this particular, I don't know in well, in Matthew, he says this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay. Luke doesn't say that. So I don't, you know, there are lots of parables about banquets, even all the way back into the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> there are stories of banquets that have significance. Um, you can think back to Esther, you can think back to David, you can think, you know, there's lots of this imagery. Um, where the banquet is abundance. It represents abundance. It represents God's abundance for us. Um, So cool. So then the last part is many are invited, but few are chosen. That is such a famous verse, right? 
It is the one that gets taken completely out of context all the time. It is the punchline for this parable. So the question is, all right, many are invited. Were good and bad people invited? Yes. More than one bad person invited? Yes. How many bad people were thrown out? One. Which means there's bad people left. But they had dressed for this. So that tells me that both good and bad were chosen. Chosen for what? Pardon? Or chosen for what? To come to the banquet. To be part of this banquet. It, and so the question Here was... The, kingdom of God. The, the, the chosen ones, what determined that they were chosen in this story? What was the sole criteria for being chosen? Show up. They showed up. They came. They just chose to come to the banquet. That's and it. they dressed properly. <laughs> and they dressed properly. Right? They had respect. But they just showed up. They didn't have to be good or bad or they showed up. The king had enough abundance for all of them. And I want to make, go ahead. I'm sorry. I I was going back to the last block. Um, I know it says that the king noticed one guest, but could that be interpreted to mean that all all of the bad guests were thrown out into the darkness? I mean, why? I don't. It didn't say that. It just said know, only it the guy who showed up without clothes that presumably everybody in this culture has. Yeah, I'm trying to take it too literally. I guess. Go I, ahead. What are you thinking? Well, Again, if I mean, if if the idea is that if you keep doing bad things, you're going to be thrown out into the darkness. I guess maybe the the fact that the, the focus was on one person, I guess that was enough to get the message across that doing bad things, doing bad things will get you thrown out of the kingdom of God into the darkness. And the way I read many of Jesus' other comments. Um, in in these kinds of things is is that it if that is your choice if you choose darkness you get darkness if you choose light you get light it's your the agency is yours God's not doing this to you God is offering abundance and light. To, to both good and bad people? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's why the way you just said it, both good and bad people were left in the in the banquet after this one person was thrown out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least in this story, you know. Well, because you know, I think it sounds to me like if let's let's take it from the converse, Woody. Let's take it from the other side. By the one guy getting thrown out who didn't have good clothes and it only being one and us knowing there's more, there are more than one bad person around in this banquet. It means that the other bad people put on the clothing of respect. That was a thought that, that came, that, that came to me while, while you were talking about this is that the other people who accepted the invitation and came um, honored the occasion and honored the host where this man decided to come and essentially thumb his nose at the host and disrespect the occasion by making this public statement of disrespect. 
which is a whole different thing than just ignoring the invitation or making an excuse to not come, but actually to come as if he is graciously accepting this invitation to the party, but coming specifically to be a disruptor. Right. Affirmatively disrespecting. Yes. That sounds like official legal speak, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but that's a completely different thing than just not coming or ignoring the invitation. It's coming with ill intent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And I want to point out that what we're also, you know, it's always good when you're looking at a story to look at who's not in the story. And who's not in the story, as far as I can tell, are the good and the bad people who didn't come, who are still out there. Good and bad. Who chose not to come to the banquet. They're still out there in presumably darkness, right? You know, in this kind of dichotomy that we're looking at. And just, I just want to think broadly and richly. And here's, and here's one more thing <laughs> to think about. So what does, what does chosen mean? Yeah, right. Exactly. Perfect. That was exactly what I was going to ask. <laughs> Who are the chosen? Okay, so you've invited you've invited a bunch of people who didn't come. Then you've invited a bunch more people who who came eventually. And one of them was affirmatively bad, so he got thrown out. But you've got all the rest there, good and bad people. I mean, wow. I mean, you, these were all people who were invited. I don't see how they distinguish between that and who was chosen? I, I saw. I don't know. I don't know. Who was? What what, I think. Who? Who? What is the difference between everybody who is invited and everybody who is chosen? No difference. I think it, the chosen is is who shows up. You know, okay. it's the people who come to the banquet who say, "Okay, I'm in." You know, but I want you to think about. The servants. Where are the servants in all this? They're doing They're all the trying work. to round up other guests. Yeah. Rhonda, did you say something? I, I said they're they're doing all the work. Exactly. They're they're already in the kingdom. They're already in the kingdom doing the work. The chosen are everybody else who gets invited. We need to stop thinking of ourselves as some special kind of chosen something on top of the heap. Because we're not, we're the waitstaff, folks. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples. You are not the guy sitting on the right and the left hand. You are the wait staff at the banquet. You're the ones handing out. You're the postman. That is a different mindset, I think, than Christians tend to associate with the word chosen. It, it seems to me like that. I have always thought of chosen as meaning somebody else chose them. But that to that phrase, many are invited, but few are chosen. I I would read it. Many are invited, but few show up. Exactly. That seems to be Jesus' point here. Well, and back to you, I think sometimes we Christians, other Christians, <laughs> Use chosen as I'm more in power. I I'm better than you. When if what you're saying essentially, God is trying to bring us back to humility, <laughs> like to being the humble servants. But we don't think chosen people should be the humble servants. 
we should, you know, people are like, oh, if I'm chosen, I'm the one that's trying to change, make new rules, change people's minds, force them into the kingdom instead of humbling, loving, and serving. Well, then that goes back to the earlier part of the story um, where he turns to the guests who were sitting in the seat of honor and saying, you know, when you come to somebody's party, don't just go up and sit in that seat, assuming you're the most important person coming to the party, because you could be embarrassed when you're asked to move. Go to the foot of the table and allow the host to demonstrate to you how important you are as a guest by bringing you up closer to the head of the table. And that's the humility thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what we're talking about now, this is the bottom, the important kernel of the story. All right. This is what in this series, watch for this. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples and everybody else, but especially the disciples, but really everybody. This is, this is who we need to be. God chooses us all, all of us. Anybody who wanted to come could come. And we thus are the servants at work already in the kingdom. We're going to be working through the banquet, maybe, right? It'd be okay. Okay. We're in the, kingdom, right. most, we're in the kingdom most of the time. <laughs> you know, we're doing our best, and I think that's all. I think that's enough, right? That's, Clearly that's enough. Okay. Clearly that's enough. There's a great deal of open arms in this story. And in Jesus' words. So I I thought this was worth looking at a little bit closer oh. Oh, yeah. to think yeah. about. And that's all I really have for today. So <laughs> well, I, I have a much better understanding of this story now. So thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Good discussion. Good thinking. I love you all. I'll be thinking about you. Bye. Bye. Bye.